I think of Barton Gelman as a little bit of a prophet. He puts it differently. I feel like the bad news correspondent. Uh, I'm the catastrophe correspondent, and there are jokes in our household about not reading my stories at bedtime. Back in the fall of 2020, before we knew who would be elected president or what the weeks and months after that election would look and feel like, Barton wrote this article. It was called The Election That Could Break America. And when I read it, I thought, God, this guy's dramatic. Did you did you hear from people after that piece with that sentiment? Like, oh boy, dread, I guess. Yeah, well, so I heard dread uh, and concern and what can we do? And then I also heard people saying that it was really inconceivable what I was talking about, that this just wasn't going to happen. And the Biden campaign at the time did not consider this uh, article to be on message. They were afraid of scaring voters, uh, of if people felt fatalistic, then they wouldn't show up at the polls. We all know what followed. A contested election, dozens of lawsuits, all of it culminating in a crowd of people storming the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. I certainly didn't predict that there would be a riot at the Capitol and that a mob would come to the seat of Congress and try to prevent the counting of electoral votes. Uh, But it fit the pattern I was describing. uh, And the events of January 6th were a part of a coherent plan to prevent Biden's victory from being certified and leading to his swearing in. But you thought the risk was mostly political, not physical. I was not anticipating that uh, there would be a noose and screams of hang Mike Pence as a crowd searched the Capitol for him, no. Now, Barton has written a new piece. It's called Trump's Next Coup Has Already Begun. I think it's easy to feel like the storm has passed. But I wonder, a year later, if you are more or less anxious about all of the things that you wrote about back in 2020. I'm more worried than I was last time. Uh, Trump has a greater likelihood of success in overthrowing the next election than he did the last one. Today on the show, all the things that happened after January 6th are just as important as what took place on the day itself. Maybe more so. Barton Gelman explains why. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. In your latest work, you you try to understand not just how January 6th happened, but what it means for what might happen next. And you talk to some of these people who you say were summoned and still don't trust the 2020 election results. You focus in on one man named Richard Patterson. He's a retired New York firefighter you got to know. Can you explain how you met him? I met him uh, walking around 
at a protest on behalf of the January 6th defendants. Uh, it was called Justice for January 6th. And the conceit of the, of the demonstration was uh, that these were Pelosi's political prisoners uh, hmm. and that they needed to be released. Had he participated in January 6th? He did not. He did not come. He would have, but he got uh, thwarted incoming. So he was looking at the same images on television that I was, but how did he see them differently? Well, actually not. That's the, the fascinating thing. He, he is not getting his news from mainstream sources. He had seen, played over and over and over again, the video in which uh, there are three or four Capitol Police officers uh, at a bicycle barricade and they pull the barricade back and give up because they're outnumbered and they can't defend the barricade and they simply stand aside and let protesters sweep past them. And he was told over and over again that that, that meant that the police were inviting the protesters to come into the Capitol. Huh. He had not seen what we've all seen, which is the footage of protesters uh, beating police with flagpoles and hockey sticks and fire extinguishers and baseball bats uh, and hand-to-hand combat and crushing Officer Daniel Hodges in a doorway. He simply hadn't seen that stuff and did not believe that the January 6th protests were violent. And when I sort of showed him that they were violent, he blamed interlopers. He said that it must have been Antifa and the way he had heard it there were U.S. special forces in and among and allied with Antifa in a plot that was both by Nancy Pelosi and also uh, the Republican Senate leader, Mitch McConnell, uh, both working together. They had, had sent in special forces uh, with Antifa to pretend to be Trump supporters to make them look bad, hmm. which sounds absolutely crazy loopy uh probably to many of the listeners of this podcast but he honestly believed it barton wanted to know where someone would encounter a theory this far out so he asked the firefighter where he was getting his information and he pointed barton to rumble a youtube style website popular with conservatives where a military guy was pushing these kinds of ideas and i went and found and there's a retired U.S. Air Force general guy named McInerney, who in fact did claim uh, that special forces uh, with Antifa had gone in and they had seized Nancy Pelosi's laptop and found evidence of her treason on this laptop. And the evidence was about to be made public. Again, a kind of nutty, baseless story. uh, But I wanted to trace that back. So I called up McInerney, the general. And I asked him, how he knew there were special forces there. And he said, well, they had short hair and looked physically fit. They looked like special forces. Hmm. He wasn't there, by the way. Uh, And I said, how'd you know they took Nancy Pelosi's laptop? He said, well, somebody saw them with something square underneath their coat. So I said, so you don't know whether it was a laptop and you don't know whether it was Nancy Pelosi's and you couldn't possibly know what's on it. And he basically acknowledged that. And the thing to know about this guy is this this same general was all over the right-wing ecosystem of information. His uh, What he said on Rumble was uh, reproduced 
on InfoWars, uh, the Alex Jones site, uh, and Gateway Pundit, and uh, ILoveTrump.com, and all these other websites and social media. He's a regular commentator with Michael Flynn. I mean, this guy is regarded as an authority in Trump world. And so I went back to my firefighter friend and said, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. I mean, look, this is his basis for saying it. And Patterson, the firefighter, he just wouldn't believe me. He had been subjected to such a volume of propaganda that uh, he just was not budgeable uh, from from that knowledge. One of the things that you note about the firefighter that you met is that he's had years of grievances with the world around him and how it's changing. Like you talk about how he wanted to be a firefighter and affirmative action seemed to get in his way. And, you know, he's part of a declining white minority in his Bronx neighborhood. Why did you want to note that? I picked uh, this firefighter in part because he fit the profile uh, nationally of the people that political scientists have identified as the group that is inclined to believe two propositions. Uh, One is that Biden is illegitimate, uh, and two is that violence is justified to restore Trump to power. That's 8% of the population, or about 21 million people, according to uh, public opinion data gathered at the University of Chicago. It's a lot of people. It's a lot of American adults, and most of them own guns, and one in six of them uh, are prior military, and they could make a lot of trouble. The other thing about that group, if if you ask uh, what they think about, you know, a whole long list of political uh, opinions and propositions, there's only one that gets sort of super majority support from them, and that is that uh, white people are being replaced by minorities in this country which is also known as the Great Replacement Theory. It is a formerly uh, fringe belief by white power, white supremacist groups, that there's a secret elite who's trying to manipulate the country by bringing in more and more minorities um, to displace white people from their rightful place in society. The uh, strongest correlation the researchers found among the people arrested for crimes on January 6th was that they came from counties where the white share of population in their county uh, had declined from one census to the other. The researcher that you're alluding to who's who studied the people who are involved with January 6th, the people who support it, he made interesting historical comparisons to me. Like he looked at the January 6th rioters and he compared them to anti-Muslim Serbs that were egged on by Slobodan Milosevic. He also compared January 6th rioters to Catholic Irish nationalists in Northern Ireland at the beginning of the Troubles. How is this historical parallel clarifying for you? Because for me, I see that and I think, whoa, that feels really different than what's going on here. Why does it not feel different to him and, and maybe to you? This guy's name is Robert Pape. He's a political scientist at Chicago. Uh, He has spent a career studying political violence. The comparison he made to the Muslims and the Serbs was like this. He looked at Trump's own speech, and he did a close analysis of Trump's speech on January 6th. 
and said that it reminded him of a notorious speech that Slobodan Milosevic had made in 1989, in which he told Serbs that uh, Muslims in the former Yugoslavia were trying to extinguish them, were trying to uh, displace them, uh, that the fate of the nation was being decided, that uh, they, the Serbs, were the, were the real patriots uh, and had to act now or forever lose their place in society. And he said that same message, which manipulated toward political violence, is the message that Trump described in his January 6th speech. And then we talked about Northern Ireland in a different context. And that was the the context of the 8% that we were talking about earlier. And in uh, in other polls, the number of Americans uh, who believe that there may soon come a day when violence is required, which is a slightly softer version of that statement, that wins 12% support among Americans. So by no means a majority. By no means a majority, but a lot of people. And he's... I mentioned the 12% to him, and he said, well, let's look at Northern Ireland. Uh, in the late 1960s, uh, there were 13% of Irish Catholics in the North who believed that violence was justified to get out from under British rule. Uh, and hmm. uh, within a year, the provisional IRA was formed uh, and had substantial support from among the wider population. It doesn't take more than that to foster violence. Yeah, he's saying a spark is what causes a fire. Right. So what he's worried about is another spark uh, from Republican elites, from a party leader, and and specifically from Trump. Uh, Trump summoned the mob to Washington on January 6th, and he's capable of summoning them again. I wonder how you think of the differences in these comparisons, though, too. Like, I was thinking about that Slobodan Milosevic speech, and I was thinking how you know, he was in his 40s when he started fanning the flames of ethnic hatred like that. Donald Trump is 75. And I'm wondering if he himself can carry the movement he created forward and what that means about how durable it is. Hmm, that's really interesting. Look, as you're implying, biology has an answer to Donald Trump. He's not going to live forever. But he remains right now, as we speak, uh, the overpowering dominant force in Republican politics and the only politician in the country who has uh, tens of millions of passionate supporters who would do just about anything for him and who see him in a way that they don't see any other figure in public life. We'll be right back. Barton Gelman says Trump may not need to be around for the groundwork he laid to undo American democracy. That's because... Since the election, Republicans have been working at the state level around the country to strip power from some elections officials and flood some of these elections positions themselves. It's all under the guise of election integrity. States like Arizona, Texas, and Georgia, they've all made it easier for partisan actors 
to control election outcomes. What's happened is that Trump's acolytes and supporters have looked pretty systematically at where his effort to overturn the election failed. What were the points of failure? And it has assaulted each one of those points of failure with kind of a many-pronged attack. Uh, Let's just take the example in Georgia. Georgia had a, a Republican Secretary of State, Brad Raffenberger, lifetime Republican politician, who oversaw the count of the votes in Georgia. They counted once, and then they recounted, and they recounted again. Uh, And after the third time, he certified Biden's victory, uh, which was his obligation as a good faith referee of uh, who voted for whom in the state. And famously, he did this under a lot of pressure. At some point, he released a phone call that he had with the president who was pressuring him to find votes. Right. The president was telling him he might be breaking the law uh, by allowing all this so-called fraud uh, to go unpunished. He he said, find me 11,780 votes, uh, which, which is the uh, margin that Biden won by. Just find me those votes. I don't care how you do it. And even with that pressure, he's certified. So what has happened? Trump has endorsed an opponent to unseat him from his job. The state Republican Party has censured him. Uh, because he did his job, uh, the state Republican legislature has changed the law so that the Secretary of State no longer has a vote on the certification uh, board. That is to say, even if they don't push Raffsenberger out of his job in the next election, he won't have any role in certifying uh, the election. So they're simply stripping him of that power. And for good measure, they're accusing Fulton County, which is the Democratic stronghold of Atlanta, of all kinds of irregularities in the last election, and therefore the legislature passed another new law, which gives it the power to fire county election authorities in places like Fulton County and replace them with other people who will be in charge of the count. And so there's this full-bore partisan uh, takeover of the election administration. I mean, it's one thing uh, to suppress your opponent's vote. It's another thing to be able to say, well, we're in charge of the counting of the vote and, and, and we count that we won. And you're seeing this all over the country. You're, you're seeing partisans with the explicit justification that Biden stole victory, that Trump really won the election. Uh, and because of that, we're making these partisan changes in the law and we'll be in charge of counting next time. And this is why your latest article was called Trump's Next Coup Has Already Begun. But here's a direct question. If for some reason he doesn't run in 2024, how much do you think all this preparation on the Republicans' part matters? I think it matters a lot. Um, I mean, if people build an apparatus that lets them take control over the election and they do so on the spurious grounds that the winner is not the winner and the loser is not the loser, I think they're going to use it. Meanwhile, the Democrats hold the reins of power in Washington, but they seem unable to stop what's going on in the states. Back in July, Joe Biden gave a speech that was billed as a major defense of voting rights. There's an unfolding assault taking place in America today, an attempt to suppress and subvert the right to vote in fair and free elections, an assault on democracy, an assault on liberty, an assault on who we are, 
who we are as Americans. But for all his rhetoric, the president didn't lay out a plan for how to meet this assault. Sure, he name-dropped voting rights legislation, but he didn't explain how Democrats are supposed to break through unified opposition to what they want to do. He said that uh, the things we're seeing uh, in terms of election subversion and suppression efforts, uh, he hardly ever said the word Republican, uh, but he said that that uh, democracy at risk, in fact, he said specifically that there was a graver threat to American democracy now than at any other time since the Civil War. Very big words from a president. And it seemed to me that that should signal a commensurate effort on the part of the president to do something about it. And that just didn't happen. Biden said he's in favor of federal voting laws. Well, that's nice, but they're being filibustered by Republicans in the Senate and have no chance of passage unless something is done uh, to modify the filibuster. Uh, He didn't mention the filibuster in his speech. And my point in the story is that he was right to say there is an urgent threat to democracy that is emerging right now. There is an actual risk that the person who wins the election in 2024 will not be allowed to become president. The person who loses uh, will be declared the winner. Uh, And that being the case, urgent action is called for. I had this question after reading some of your reporting, which was, who are you writing your articles for? Because when I read your writing, I think Bart Gelman is really nervous and he thinks I should be nervous too, but I'm not sure what you want me to do with that alarm that I am now feeling. That's a great question that I wish I had a better answer for. Who I'm writing for is always meant to be an open-minded reader interested in the facts. Uh, I can't fool myself into believing that I'm going to have a very large number of readers among Trump true believers. But I'm writing it for anyone who wants to know what I think is really happening and what the implications are. And a lot of readers are asking what they should do, and that's just not my job. I'm not competent to tell them what to do, and they should be glad I'm not in charge of what to do because uh, I don't know. I I think that my job is to call attention to something that I think has been underplayed, to say that I think there's an urgent emergency here and that it requires people's focus and time and energy, and then let smarter people than me figure out what to do about it. Barton Gelman, thank you for joining me. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Barton Gelman is a staff writer over at The Atlantic. You can read his piece, Trump's Next Coup Has Already Begun, over at their website. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Carmel Del Shad, Mary Wilson, Daniel Hewitt, and Elena Schwartz. We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. And I'm Mary Harris. I'm at Mary's desk on Twitter. Go find me. Say hello. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you tomorrow.